Thank you for downloading this podcast from The Reading Room, brought to you from Siren 107.3 FM. This is Room 12, and we've just celebrated our first year of broadcasting in style by being nominated in the professional category of the European Podcast Awards, and it's fair to say we're over the moon. Uh, Now, if you download this podcast through the Podbean page, you'll see on the right-hand side uh, a European Podcast Awards voting button. Uh, If you button there and follow the links through, you don't have to give your email address, uh, but there uh, there are prizes available there, I'm sure, uh, from the camera company that are sponsoring the event. If you download this through iTunes, pop yourself over to readingroom.podbean.com Uh, because you'll be able to see the other content that's on our site as well, as well as voting for us. Now, coming up on this podcast, we talk to historical fiction author Karen Maitland about how and where she finds her inspiration. I take a notebook obsessively with me everywhere, even into the bath, um, because I get my (laughs) best ideas when I'm lying in water. Poet John Welsh tells us about his third book, Manic Reflections, and how being bipolar affects his creativity. The only thing I got a a qualification in was romantic dreaming, because while the teachers were droning on, my head was somewhere else. It was out in the lanes of Yorkshire. Author Claire Kinton talks about the writing process of her first novel, Dead Game, which was inspired by the death of her cousin while serving in Iraq. I just started writing and the story just wrote itself. The characters unfolded before me and it was just something that I was really compelled to write. And our story is Melanie and the Outside World from Joe Evans. What about the man she had met with that evening? Did he adore her? Melanie doubted it. His gleaming green eyes had enticed her though and she wanted to see them again. The Reading Room Book Group will also discuss The Time Traveller's Wife by Audrey Neffenegger. And of course, we'll include more of your 101 books to read before you die. I'll see you at the end. This is Brandon Cleary. You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3. But now it's time to hear an interview with the author that we've been trying to get on the programme for a few months. However, our respective diaries have been rather at odds. But I'm very pleased to say that Karen Maitland came to the Siren FM studios recently to talk to us about her books and the writing process. And not only was she a fascinating guest, but she also brought along some of the unusual items from her office that inspire her work. Now, a lot of authors we speak to on The Reading Room fit in writing around their day jobs. But as a published author, does she still work nine to five? Yes, I think it's really important to keep office hours to have the discipline of of actually going to work nine to five even if you're going to work in your own home because otherwise you would actually never get the books done to a deadline and my books are very long Um, I have a minimum word count set by the publishers which is 140,000 words to be done in a year and then I produce a novella as well every year so um, if I didn't do the nine to five I wouldn't get that done. So have you suffered from procrastination in the in the past is this what you know sort of triggers this quite quite strict routine? I think all writers do to some extent that you desperately want to write and you, you, you you're desperately excited about writing but it's like any job especially if you're not sure what you're going to write you find yourself um, looking around the house and thinking oh I really must clear out those drains before I get down to it. <laughs> or make another cup of coffee or something like that and you have to learn to overcome those sorts of things and really kind of discipline yourself into into getting down to it and they they say write about what you know the old adage and yeah. uh, and that this is something that you i suppose uh, during your traveling as well you've uh, you, you've put yourself in 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 positions where medieval people would have would have found themselves yeah. actually you know sort of uh, going and bargaining for their own food and this kind of thing yes i lived in nigeria for 18 months and the place that i lived in didn't have water or electricity you had to go and fetch your water from the river and you had to be thinking about survival the whole time but it made me realize how 
perilous life was. And I think the other aspect of that was how much you depended on the rest of your community because there was no police, there was no fire service, there was no health service. So if your house was burning down, as it did very often in the villages, you know, they caught fire, um, you were dependent on your neighbours to come and help you put it out. Now, if you were for any, any reason an outcast from that village, they would stand by and watch it burn. And that would have been the same in the Middle Ages. You know, if there was a mad axe murderer on your doorstep, you depended on your neighbours coming to help you. Um, and if they didn't, if you'd fallen out with them or you'd been excommunicated by the church, you were really, you know, in difficulty. Um, and I think living that lifestyle really, really brings that home to you in a way that we have kind of lost in the modern world. The, the items in front of me, would you keep these on your on your desk or just in your in your in your room, in your office? I keep them on my office and quite often on my desk because they're very important, some of them, for me to handle and smell and um, get to know. OK, so we, well, if we talk about smell, though, I'm going to pick up on the word smell and say, uh, this is time, isn't it? It's time, And yes. I only know this because you've mentioned it beforehand. <laughs> I, my, my fingers are anything but green. Well, I grow a lot of medieval herbs in the garden because it's very important to me to go out um, and actually to be able to smell them and then be able to come back in and write about them and, and to be able to see what times they flower and all of that kind of thing. And in the Middle Ages, thyme, for example, was hugely important. It was burned as an antiseptic. People understood that it would keep away um, bad humours if they were operating, because they did operate in the Middle Ages. But they also believed that thyme was very important for the dead. And I wonder if I could read you a little bit from the yes, um, book do. that I've um, done. This is from The Gallows Curse, oh. my, my most recent book. And in, it's actually narrated by a mandrake, um, which is a kind of um, plant which is a semi-god. And at the beginning of each chapter, there is the mandrake's herbal, and the mandrake writes about other plants, just as an indication as to how important they were in the Middle Ages. So I'm just going to read you the extract about time, if that's okay. Please do. This herb gives courage to the faint-hearted and joy to the melancholy. The crushed leaves relieve the pain of bee stings, cure headaches, kill the worms of the belly and banish nightmares. Foolish ladies give sprigs of it to those who ride in the holy wars in the forlorn hope that their lovers will remember them. The souls of the dead take shelter in time. When a mortal dies, time is brought into the house and kept there until the body is taken for burial. But it is not used in the funeral wreath, for time means nothing to the dead. But if a maid or man be foully murdered, the sweet smell of time shall haunt the place where they fell for all eternity, though no time plants grow near it. For the passage of time cannot undo the crime of murder, since the victim is gone from mortal reach and has no tongue or sign to forgive the one who wronged him. And that was a very strong medieval belief that you had to have a pot of time brought into a sick room if somebody was dying so the soul would have somewhere to go until the body was buried because the soul couldn't leave the earth until the body was buried. But also this belief that if somebody had been murdered, you would smell time on their spot. So it was very important for medieval travellers because they would be travelling along the road and they'd get a whiff of time and they'd look around and they couldn't see a time plant and they'd think, oh dear, somebody got mudded on this spot or, or, or yeah. murdered. And so you get 
get out of there as quickly as possible. And it was a very, very strong belief in those days. Would you describe yourself as a as historical fiction writer? Yes, I'm a historical thriller writer, a very dark thriller writer. So, um, yes, it's, it's it's nice nice and high body count. <laughs> <laughs> superb, superb. So how far do the... Do you stretch any facts? Bearing in mind, if if you were uh, if you were making a Hollywood hi- historical film, by Jove, do they stretch? You know, they, oh, they, they do. Yes. They, they stretch it beyond belief almost. Yeah. Um, so, how how much do you allow yourself to play with that? Well, I write about ordinary people um, because I'm far more interested in the lives of the ordinary men and women who lived in the villages and who um, fought in the wars, who maybe ploughed the fields, and and the extraordinary lives they must have actually had. So the actual historical background I try to make as accurate as possible. But of course, I'm not actually constrained in the way that somebody writing about Henry VIII would be to sticking to his storyline, you know, what actually happened. So I try to get all the historical detail right and not stretch any of that but then I put a fictional story interwoven into that um, so it's slightly easier for me. I see, yeah, yeah, you can uh, stretch a little. Yeah. Now I'm also looking down at our desk here and um, I'm looking at a monk or I'm holding a monk now, uh, all, all dressed up in his robe, I'm not going to look under the robe but uh, <laughs> so, uh, so, so again talk to me about the monk. Well, I have a medieval doll's house in my office, which is in the form of a banqueting hall, and it's full of all kinds of medieval things. And I find that very useful to look at when I'm actually describing a scene because I can go in and I can kind of imagine myself walking through this hall. And one of the characters in there is is a monk. And religion was incredibly important in the Middle Ages. Uh, Nearly the greatest employer in the whole of the country was the monasteries and the church. The trouble was that the people who went to become monks and priests and things weren't always particularly um, godly (laughs) in any way. Um, You you went in there more because it was a a means of earning a living. It was the only way really of rising up through the ranks if you came from the very poor. So a lot of the priests and monks um, and nuns lived by our standards quite debauched lives. And if you look at one of the characters, um, Bishop Delisle, the Bishop of Ely, he was, in fact, accused of burning down people's houses. He he was brought up on three counts of murder. Now, we don't know whether he did or didn't commit them, but he was certainly a pretty ruthless man. Um, so you can understand that the, the monks and nuns and priests um, make wonderful fodder for the books because, you know, they're, they're not always as godly as they would be today, obviously. Yeah, yeah certainly they're adding drama. And as, as well as uh, the objects you have around you, certainly you, you go on location. I do, yeah. One of the important visits that I made really was for the Gallows Curse. And much of the Gallows Curse is set around Great Yarmouth and Norwich. And Great Yarmouth was, of course, a, a, an island in those days. It was completely surrounded by water and it was so deep that you could actually bring battleships and, and merchant ships in the bay. So one of the things that I did was to actually go to Great Yarmouth and I went outside of Great Yarmouth to a a rise um, which is actually a a Roman fort there and it's where one of my characters in the book lies in order to observe the bay. He's trying to see the arrival of a ship but doesn't himself want to be seen and just by sort of lying on the grass there and peering down into what is now fields you could imagine um, at which point he would have been able to see a ship coming round the bend and at which point he would have seen a boat go out from the land to meet it. So 
it's very important to visualize that and that gives just physically being there gives you these fantastic ideas for scenes so a book a year Mm-hmm. you're working on um, how's, how's, how's progress next I'm assuming there are no titles uh, to, to, to give away we can't really have, have an exclusive uh, well the book I've just finished and handed into my publishers is called The Falcons of Fire and Ice mm. um, and it's actually set partly in Portugal it's a historical thriller but it's set partly in Portugal in Lisbon and partly in Iceland which is a country I really adore um, and Unfortunately, every time I was writing it, um, I, I, I would get to the scene where there is a volcanic eruption and the real vol- <laughs> volcano would go off in Iceland. So I'm beginning to think it might be a little bit cursed, but uh, it was it was quite quite funny sort of writing. The power, <laughs> yes, the power, the power of the power of the pattern. <laughs> yes. Well, actually, I mean, let, let's look at actually I, we've, we've picked up on that. And I, the pen, is it a pen or a computer screen that you use? How do you write? I write straight onto a keyboard, yeah. straight onto a computer. Um, I take a notebook obsessively with me everywhere, even into the bath, um, because I get <laughs> my best ideas when I'm lying in water. So I, I write loads and loads of ideas, um, jot them down as soon as they come into my head. But I actually compose straight onto the computer screen, um, which I find a lot easier than and and I you know really pity years ago when if you wanted to rewrite a scene you had to rewrite every single word it must have been a nightmare Um, especially when your publisher comes up and says could you just change that round a little bit and and how do you how does that make you feel when when you get feedback from a publisher like that you know do you do you hold certain scenes dearly and then uh, you know perhaps they get they get cut well, I, I think one of the things is that you get the feedback from the publisher and for 10 minutes you sort of lie on the floor and chew the carpet and <laughs> scream and shout and spit your dummy out. Um, and then you read it again and you think, actually, you know, she's quite right. <laughs> Absolutely right. I think the hardest thing for me was Company of Liars, uh, which was my first historical novel. It was actually being edited at the same time by Penguin, the publishing house in England, and Random House in America. So I had two editors working on it at the same time. And I got an email from both of them by coincidence on the same day. One saying, we want you to make this character much nicer. And the other one saying, we want you to make this character much nastier. (laughs) That does take some thinking about. I don't want to know which way you went. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, neither. Our thanks to Karen Maitland there, and I would urge you to visit uh, karenmaitland.com. There are links there to buy her books, and also uh, a glossary of words uh, used in her books, including some very uh, interesting old Lincolnshire dialect, uh, which is probably still used, certainly on our shop floor. Hello, this is Georgia Twynham, and you're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. Uh, Time for some poetry now, and to introduce us to John Welsh, we're going to play you one of his poems. Uh, Amongst other things, John writes personal poetry uh, for people who provide him with a little information. Now... This one was written specifically for someone that told him that they liked red wine and cheese. The day I went to outer space. The day was unsurprising, with chores to do and plan, and I was off to Tesco's, and then the telephone rang. I have a call for you, the polite operator said. It's the director of NASA. My jaw just turned to lead. After checking, as he would, he said the draw was made, and random rules applying, this is what he bade. I was to come to Houston, by jet and by fast cars, for tomorrow it was blast-off, to the moon and then to Mars. My mate said it's a wind-up, a scam to catch you out. But even if you get to space, no one can hear you shout. The next twelve hours were crazy, my feet didn't touch the ground, 
and I am descending onto lunar plains, and this is what I found. That all the songs and poetry, that all the rhymes and riddle, it's not cheese, it's dust and rock right into the middle. I like a bit of cheese, you know, and this was my big chance to sit and munch and watch the stars and see the earthlight dance. No time for disappointment. Haven't got the time. Off to Mars at tea time. The colour suggests wine. Now, I first met John during the interval at the Reading Room Live, uh, which you can find on YouTube, uh, and you can find that via our website, readingroom.podbean.com. Uh, and I spent some time with him during a workshop at the Lincoln Heyday as well, and John was very pleased and proud to talk about his bipolar, which I must confess being rather ignorant about. So I asked him to give a brief explanation. It's, it's a mental health issue, mental health illness. It's actually become quite fashionable if you, uh, if you read the uh, magazines, etc. And what it is, it's a chemical imbalance in, in your brain and it can send you very high or very low, so more extreme than normal because obviously people don't flatline. They, you know, they all go up and down a yeah. bit as in as with their moods. But with bipolar, it can actually go off the scale or go very, very high, in which case you think you can fly, um, you think you can spend a million pounds when you've only got a hundred, um, you think you can drink till morning um, and, and everything <laughs> that goes with that. And then in the op- opposite direction, you can obviously sink to a very, very low place, a very dark place. I was diagnosed in 95, so quite late on in my life. and. Uh, I could have kissed the consultant um, because he made sense of a lot of strange and weird and wonderful things that have been happen to, happening to me throughout my life. Yeah, and you certainly said to me uh, earlier on that, you know, you, you being diagnosed with this, that, that, you, that you find it a blessing and you're very proud of it. Yes, absolutely. Um, there is a creativity. If you, if you Google bipolar disorder or who's got bipolar disorder, then you've got artists, you've got politicians. There is a creativity in there somewhere. Yeah, uh, and it may be that it's what gives me my urge to write, and it always has given me my urge to write. I think I'm a bit of a character anyway. I'm a bit of an extrovert, um, and I've often wondered, does the condition drive the personality, or does the personality drive the condition? I'm The jury's out on that one, but I'm quite happy to have bipolar. Let's look at and let's focus on that creativity side. I mean, very recently, you're on book three now, aren't you? You've you've published three books. Book three is just being worked on at the moment by my publisher. It's been accepted. So the first one was brilliant. Uh, the second one I had to do because I had to prove that the first one wasn't a fluke. So I, did a, I decided to do a trilogy. So Manic Inspections is book three. It's reflective back to uh, a time in the 1950s when I was growing up in Yorkshire. So my education, really, my, my education years. Okay, we, you talked, uh, or we're going to talk about triggers. The poem you're going to read for is Lessons in Life. What's the trigger for that? Where did that come from? Well, the way I sort of like looked at my... Um, secondary uh, education uh, was that um, the only thing I got a, a qualification in was romantic dreaming um, because while the teachers were droning on about maths and Latin and uh, sciences my head was somewhere else it was out in the lanes of Yorkshire but my education I believe started at 16. So do you want to read that for us? Yeah I'd love to yeah as I say lessons in life I never was a scholar attentive or a swat the teacher's drone of science 
bored me to the spot. But proximity to the window meant my thoughts could rise and go. I was classroomed as a prisoner. The exam result would say no. I was off chasing fairies, romping through the corn, exploring the world of magic, dirty knees and jumper torn. Sometimes I would become a character from TV, film or book and share their lives and loves and marvel at their luck. So with my blank notes there before me, a vacant look, no talk, I would be woken from my daydream by teacher's well-aimed chalk. You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. The Reading Room's 101 books to read before you die. My name's Kim Anderson. I'm from thereadingroom.com and the one book I think you should read before you die is David Maloof's Ransom. That is such a beautiful, simply written book. It's poetic in its um, writing and it takes five minutes from the Iliad, or in fact five lines from the Iliad, and turns it into the most beautiful story about the love a father has for his son. Um, it's just not put downable and readable again and again and again. Oh, that's Kim Anderson from thereadingroom.com, uh, all the way over in Australia. And uh, you can hear the interview we did with those uh, on our website, readingroom.podbean.com. Now it's back to some more poetry and our interview with John Welsh. Now, I was keen to know where John's influences came from and also the process he uses. I've not met anybody yet who writes like me. Um, and I'm not trying to make out that I'm you know, unique or individual. I just haven't met them yet because um, I write straight out. Trigger, idea, pen paper write it mm-hmm. and it just straight flows out. does it just flow straight yeah, it's, out it's like you know this is possibly this is possibly bipolar it's like my brain's on fire let's look at the influences then and what what does influence you and what what triggers you there's a, there's, a, there's one particular poem isn't there that uh, that you brought along today cargoes by john macefield does it for me every time it just rolls off the tongue and i'm delighted to read it quinkareem of nineveh from distant ophir rowing home to haven from sunny palestine with a cargo of ivory, and apes and peacocks, sandalwood, cedarwood, and sweet white wine. Stately Spanish galleon, coming from the isthmus, dipping through the tropics by the palm-green shores, with a cargo of diamonds, emeralds, amethysts, topazes, and cinnamon, and gold moidores. Dirty British coaster, with a salt cake smokestack, butting through the channel in the mad March days with a cargo of tyne coal, road rail, pig lead, firewood, ironware and cheap tin trays. So where were you? Where were you when you first read them? I certainly wasn't offered it at school <laughs> because they tried to knock all joy of English literature out of my head. Yeah, so, I mean, if they, if they had offered you this at school, do you think that might have, have woken something inside you? Stop you staring out the window. Oh yes, I would have. I would have come to that. Yes, I come to that. But uh, I started buying books and and ha- hanging around in bookshops when I was sixteen. Uh, but it was always that if I locked onto an author, then uh, I would look to buy all their work or find as much of their work. Well, as well as poetry, you're looking at starting, or there's the, you're simmering at the moment, aren't you, with a novel? This is something. When I came out of school and started looking at books, I thought, oh yeah. I'll do a book. It was, it was, I said it to myself, but I knew it would happen. But because of my short 
concentration span, I soon downgraded from a full novel to a short story. So I practiced with short stories, but I could never see the end. I could always, I was really good at beginnings, <laughs> yeah. but couldn't see the actual end. But every time, I always came back to poetry. Well, now you say, we've, it's quite interesting what you say there, because we've had two poets in here now who previously said that they have a joke, a running joke, I would think, perhaps with their novelist friends as well, and they would say that they can do in a very short space of words you know, a few verses, what a novelist chooses to do over four or five hundred pages. I mean, would you see it like that? Yes. Um, from my own point of view, I, I, I wrote a poem. Probably the longest trigger I had was a 40-year wait, and the actual poem was called The Wisdom I Covet. It's in book one, because it was the only thing I really wanted when I was young, was wisdom. Wisdom only comes with experience and age. But, look, you know, I never expected to be a, a published author with, with a poetry book or even three, you know. Okay, well, let's name drop those publishers. Which publisher is it available? I use chipmunkerpublishing.co.uk, who basically give a voice to any people with mental health. Oh, thanks to uh, John Welsh there. And, uh, yeah, as he says, his book, Manic Reflections, is available from chipmunkerpublishing.co.uk. And, of course, we're going to uh, put a link to that from our website. The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. Back on Room 8 of The Reading Room, Joe Evans read one of his superb short stories that used mythological characters in a modern-day setting. And it's time now to stop whatever you're doing and let your imagination wander. Melanie and the World Outside Wednesday, 9pm As Melanie walked home, a tethered dog shook his head in pity at her. As she passed between the tall walls of the alley, a cat yawned down at her in boredom and disinterest. As she climbed the steps to the front door and reached for her keys... A pigeon defecated on her. For Melanie, it had not been a good date, a good day, or a good existence so far, and everyone and everything seemed to know it and mock her for it. The door shuddered behind her. She could unbutton her puffy coat then for the first time since leaving the house in the afternoon. It had been a warm evening, but Melanie needed her coat for protection, a shield to deflect the prying questions of her date a barrier to the mockery of the outside world. She needed her puffy coat, and she would not leave the house without it. Melanie filled the kettle. The one convenience of the date had been the food. There was no need to cook anything or do the washing up. She only required caffeine, and then reading in bed before sleep. As she poured her coffee, a fly buzzed around her moon-shaped face, bumping against her, poking fun at her. She brushed at it with her hand. She opened the kitchen window and wafted it away. She opened her bedroom window too. She flicked the curtains closed, sat on her bed and began to undress. It would be nice to have someone else do this for her, someone to ease off her dress and tug off her stockings, someone to adore her. What about the man she had met with that evening? Did he adore her? Melanie doubted it. His gleaming green eyes had enticed her though, and she wanted to see them again. She was quickly into her pyjamas, with only a fleeting glimpse of flesh to embarrass the walls. The overhead air conditioning in the restaurant had provided her with an excuse to keep her coat fastened around her. When her date arrived, she attempted a friendly smile before hiding her face behind the menu. She muttered shy responses to his questions. When he asked about her, she could only think of negative things to say. When she reached for the sauce, her coat sleeve left a trail of carnage across the table. He was patient and polite, and after the dishes were cleared, he smiled gently and asked if they could meet again the following night. 
Her bedtime book waited on the table next to the light bulbs. It was the same book she had been reading for three years. She was on line 11 of page 47. She read one line each night. She read it, then memorised it, and repeated it until she fell asleep. Sometimes the line would be the title of a chapter, or part of a sentence at the end of a paragraph. It didn't matter if it was just one word. She would just read that one line, close the book, then switch off the light, lay back, and recite the words, waiting for sleep to wash them away. She read the line, The maid understands, laughs at the happening. And she repeated, The maid understands, laughs at the happening. And she whispered, The maid understands, laughs at the happening. And she slept. Tat, tat, tat. Tat, tat, tat. Melanie's eyes unbolted. Her head pulled away from the pillow. What was it? Something had brushed her face. There was a persistent pattering sound around her head. She switched on the light. A flickering shadow danced across the walls, cast by a black winged shape flying in circles above the bed. It dipped down, again towards Melanie's face. Tat, tat, tat. Tat, tat, tat. Go away! She flashed her hand in defence. I'm sorry, said the moth. I mistook your face for the moon. The moth shifted excitedly up and down. Stay still. Melanie moved away, resting her back to the headboard. Sorry, said the moth, landing at the foot of her bed. Melanie had never talked to a moth before. She didn't realise that they talked back. She wondered what it would be like to fly through the dark in search of light and flutter in through an open window. I'm sorry I'm not the moon, she said. What are you then? asked the moth. What was Melanie? She was a young woman, crippled by timidity, nervous of failure, and destined to fail because of it. I'm a nobody, she said. You don't look like a nobody, said the moth. You look like the light of the moon, especially when you smile in your sleep. The moth pricked up his wings and disappeared into the dark corners of the room. I am the light of the moon, Melanie smiled. She liked the idea of being attractive, albeit to moths. She switched off the light. I am the light of the moon. She repeated the words. I am the light of the moon. I am the light of the moon. Over and over until sleep took her. The taxi dropped Melanie at the steps to her door. She threw her handbag onto the settee, dumped her puffy coat on the banister and carefully climbed the stairs to bed. Her eyes could barely focus on the words on the page of her bedtime book. She read her line and shut her eyes. Tat, tat, tat. Tat, tat, tat. Like the sound of finger and thumb incessantly tapping, wings fluttered around Melanie's room. She sat up and switched on the light. The moth landed at the foot of the bed. Hello, said the moth. How is my moon? I had a wonderful night, said Melanie keenly. He asked me about myself, and this time I said, I am the light of the moon, and he laughed and smiled, and we carried on talking. It was so easy. It's never been so easy to talk. The perfect date? asked the moth. I'm not sure. We talked for hours. We went to a bar and carried on talking, and there was a dance floor there. He asked me to dance, and... Melanie's excitement shifted to disappointment. I wanted to, but I couldn't. I don't know how to dance. Follow me, said the moth, rising up to the ceiling. Melanie rose with it, standing on her bed. The moth 
flew around Melanie in circles, and Melanie swirled around with it, twirling. I can dance, asked Melanie. You can dance like a butterfly, said the moth. I can dance like a butterfly. When she returned to bed, she repeated the words until she slept. I can dance like a butterfly. I can dance like a butterfly. Melanie clambered from her taxi and staggered up the steps to her house. She landed face first on her bed without undressing, even from her puffy coat. She reached over to her bedtime book, but it slipped from her fingers onto the floor. She left it there and set about snoring. Tat, tat, tat. Tat, tat, tat. Melanie didn't bother turning the light on. The fluttering wings came to a standstill at the bottom of her bed. How was your dance? asked the moth. Amazing. The perfect night? asked the moth. It was amazing. Melanie thought about how amazing it was, the talking, the dancing, gazing into his bright green eyes, the tender kisses and the promise of more. She wanted more of this man. She wanted to give herself to him, but at the same time the idea of revealing her naked body to him seemed mortifying. She turned over to look at the moth. She could just make out his shape in the dark. Take off your coat, said the moth. Melanie unbuttoned her puffy coat and allowed it to drop to the floor. Melanie then followed each of the moth's instructions one by one, standing to the side of the bed, removing her blouse, her skirt, her tights, letting her bra drop from her chest and letting her knickers slide her ankles, kicking them free. She was naked and exhilarated. You are as beautiful and as naked as the night sky, said the moth. I am as beautiful and as naked as the night sky, repeated Melanie. I am as beautiful and as naked as the night sky. She muttered the mantra over and over. She slept above the covers, exposing her body to the disbelieving eyes of her room. A gleaming light crept between the curtains. The moth spread its wings in a wave of goodbye and disappeared through the window into the world outside. Melanie had rushed around the house, preparing for her lunch date. He was to pick her up in five minutes. She'd had a shower, washed her hair, brushed her hair, cleaned her teeth, dressed and put on her puffy coat. She was ready to go. She opened the door to another sunny day. There he was, waiting for her. She was about to step from the door. She was about to go to this man, but it felt like something held her back. She hesitated. Melanie unbuttoned her coat, tugged the sleeves from her arms and let it fall to the floor, leaving her puffy chrysalis behind. She stepped out from the door and fluttered into the light of his eyes. There's a light You're listening to The Reading Room here on Siren 107.3 FM and this month's Reading Room book group. Uh, just one panellist with us this week in the studio and that is our regular reviewer, Jill Hart. Good morning, Jill. Good morning. Now, um, this is our last book that's going to be taken from the Lincolnshire Library's reading list and um, it, it's a biggie and it's, it's a biggie in title, in stature, in weight. Yes, pages, it fi- is indeed. 500 pages. Now, as, as any regular listener will know, um, as soon as 500 pages hits me, I get I get put off. I, I usually think <laughs> if you can't wrap it up in 300 pages, uh, don't bother. This is The Time Traveller's Wife 
by Audrey Neffenegger. Uh, this is the extraordinary love story of Claire and Henry, who met when Claire was six and Henry was 36. They were married when Claire was 22 and Henry 30. Impossible, but true, because Henry suffers from a rare condition where his genetic clock periodically resets and he finds himself pulled suddenly into his past or future. In the face of this force they can neither prevent nor control, Henry and Claire's struggle to lead normal lives is both intensely moving and entirely unforgettable. Uh, the Times describe it as wonky, sexy, and incredible. And uh, Vogue magazine call it truly original. And I would say, Jill, that it is truly original. Yes, this was, in effect, a first novel, which is pretty amazing, in 2003. Yeah, I, I, um, I didn't get that. Sorry to interrupt, but I didn't yeah, get that. I yeah, wanted to bring that up yeah. because I just didn't get yes. the, the, the feel about this, that it was, I, I thought this it was... It was. A, the, the author is actually, she's actually an illustrator, and she's written and illustrated books for quite a while, but this was her first novel. Um, it was one that was picked up through word of mouth, through reading groups across America, first of all, and then and, and it became a huge success on the, on that basis. And what I think makes it such a huge success is that although it is a time travelling science fiction type fantasy story, basically it is a very human story, a very human story indeed. The, the story is totally about the relationship between Henry and Claire. Lots of other things obviously happen to him during the course of the narrative that is completely ignored by the author. But the things that really make a difference, I think, are the things that stir the human emotions, which made it such a success. One of the big stories is the difficulty that they have conceiving the pregnancies. Um, they have what basically happens is that as she is producing these time traveling gene holding children they travel out and of course they die and there's a line in it that says that their love making is a battleground strewed with the corpses of children and I think for anybody that's got children or tried to have children this would be very moving on that side of the uh, when they were reading and it does stir the the emotions I've read it several times now. I've enjoyed the book from the beginning, um, but I still have a tear in, in my eye at the end. And it, it, it still affects me. I think it's a very, very strong narrative, but it's the human story that makes it so. I've read 70 pages of this book, yeah. which is disappointing. <laughs> it's disappointing for you because you, you come on here and you've, you've made the commitment to read the whole book like any, any other book group would. I just couldn't get past the time travel. Every time I pick this book up, and I know from reading several other forums and, and, and things that people have said about the emotion in the book, and I'm not adverse to emotion. I mean, mm. you know me, I'm, you know, I'm an emotional pickle. And I love to read about that kind of thing. But in my the boy brain that controls me, that controls me just would not let the time travel thing go. And working out how he can be in the room with himself. Um, and again, that, that, that's not a spoiler. That's, a, that's, that's a plot too much point. Doctor Who. Do you think? Yeah, that, that if you're in the same room as somebody else, it makes a hole as yourself. It makes a hole in the space-time continuum. I think that is one of those bits that we are acclimatised to. It's like when you first watch Twilight or read the Twilight books and the vampires are out in daylight. It's just wrong, you know. Mm. But that is just part of, of the way she develops this this fantasy theme. And writing something that is is basically a realist novel that deals in a very real way with life but with that fantasy element which is something that is quite difficult to get hold of I think if you don't read a lot of science fiction if you don't read a lot of what what they probably will you'll probably call it magic realism um there are quite a few paradoxes that do make it hard to accept 
the device of the notebook. They have a notebook when Claire is a child, Henry is an adult, and they meet at different different ages. And they use this to work out when they're going to meet next and when to, to do this. Now, I mean, that's a paradox. That's sort of chicken and egg, which came first, the notebook or the meetings. It's very hard to work around that. The actual syndrome that he, he suffers from, this chrono-displaced person syndrome, it's very well written. It's got controls and triggers like epilepsy. It's got all the bits that, that would go to it by the time... Henry reaches 43, which is the time we know right from the beginning, which is, 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 is his extent. He's, he's become old, he's become worn out beyond what he should have done normally. And there is the determined aspect of it. Everything they do seems to be determined. There, there's free will only in the present. They keep saying that, there's free will only in the present. But anything they try and change spoils it. He tries to prevent Ingrid's suicide and by doing that brings it about. So there's no free will and they can be together with your own selves at different times, which is, as I say, they say I'm not a proponent of splitting universes, but we've all become used to a certain format through reading science fiction and fantasy over the years. Yeah. And it is, it is this magic realism element that I think is quite difficult. I think the fact that the t- story jumps chronologically so much as well, I think if you're reading it for the first time, you have to just ignore that and just plough on. Don't try and work out when it is or you get completely confused. Yeah, yeah no, I just, I just found it frustrating, really. And the, the sci-fi element apart, and again, you'll know and, and regular listeners will know that I, I don't particularly connect with that. I, I do like things to be to be real and based in the here and now or, or, the, or the recent history, not too far in the past. You've read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, though. Or seen it, or listened to yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, I've seen it, and actually, yeah, I listened to the yeah. uh, listened to the audio books on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I, but that was that was yeah. But that is so science fiction that it's maybe acceptable. Where something based in a in what looks like a normal world is harder. Maybe that's the yeah, yeah. I think so. I think thing. so. But I think I, I, it was probably very well written in the fact that I, I was as frustrated, perhaps as uh, as, as Claire was when he kept jumping away. Yes. Um, and it's well written in that, but actually I'm the same with anything like that I see on the on the TV or even read. If I get you know, it, it, the, the the writing in this was really brought down why I stopped reading it just because I got frustrated. I said, well, I, you know, I don't want to go through this anymore. I'm 70 pages in. If this is what's going to happen all the way through the book, I'm just going to be annoyed to it. I, I just didn't want to pick it up again. <laughs> you see, you if you had pursued it, Paul, I think you'd have found, particularly when when they are having children and they have a child, I think that side of it would have become more interesting. Mm-hmm. I think you'd have enjoyed that more. But it is a book very much as well written, I think, for second readers. It's a very clever book and the author does play tricks with with you when you're reading. And there's lots of stuff that's in there for the second readers. There's clues, there's spoilers that would mean nothing on the first read. As the book progresses and and Henry suffers from hypothermia and frostbite and loses his legs towards the end, I mean, this his feet rather, this this is something that's part of the book all the way through, but right at the beginning there's a, a book about frostbite and hypothermia on the young Henry's shelves. There are little things in there that would mean nothing to the first reader, so she does a lot of placing things there just to sort of have a go for mm. you and to leave clues for when you're rereading. Very much is a book for a reread, I think. There are some books I like to reread, but I, do you know what? I, 
<laughs> what was quite funny on one of the forums, there was someone saying that they'd taken this in while they were recovering from uh, having their wisdom teeth extracted. Oh, that would do you. And, <laughs> and they said they they really. I mean, yeah. There's a part of that saying, well, whatever you read while you're having your wisdom teeth extracted yeah. is going to be unpleasant. But she, you know, really regretted just taking this one book because she was frustrated. But she read it all the way through just because she had nothing else, uh, nothing else to read. Um, now I think I've got some. Uh, surgery like that coming up soon so do you know what if i do <laughs> if i do go into hospital for that i think i'll probably take a copy of this in but it's a very tight very well constructed story everything means something every little thing means something the only bit that i found jarred a little bit on there they do the 9-11 events in the right time frame when they're watching it on tv that didn't seem to have a lot of pur- any purpose to the plot. That was the only bit that I felt didn't quite have a place. But when you look at when the book was written, obviously to somebody who's an American writing at that time, you could probably not write the 9-11 bit in because it obviously affected mm. affected everybody. But that is the only bit that I felt that jarred a little bit. I felt everything was so carefully worked out and I found it a pleasure. And then there's also the literary side of it. The book is full of quotes and it's full of references to other other works, other other pieces of poetry. Last month when we did the John Peel, I found it quite hard to get because I wasn't getting the music references. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, it's a book for people. It probably is a book for people who are going to get all these things. They have a a piece by A.S. Byatt from Possession, which is a book that I've liked a lot. There's a poem by Derek Walcott um, that resonated for me. And all the way through the book, there are extracts from Andrew Marvel's to his coy mistress. Uh, our regular email reviewer, Cathy from Lincoln, um, it, it's worth noting that, that, that Cathy knows the way I feel about certain books and uh, at the beginning of her email, she says to me, have you managed to read it? <laughs> and uh, of course, as we now know, I failed on that one. Uh, her review, it says, I eventually enjoyed this book. Now, you see, I think she agrees with me. <laughs> uh, initially, I found the concept of time travel very confusing, but I was drawn into the love story, which at times I found very poignant and moving. I felt this dimension is what separated the book from your average love story. I liked the writer's style of writing, but was disappointed with the ending. A lot of people, actually, Jill, have been uh, forums and things like that, that I've looked up on because I found that easier than reading the book <laughs> in preparing for this. Um, I've said that they were disappointed by the ending. Now, as we said, we don't want to give them give the ending away. But you, I mean, you really, really enjoyed the ending, didn't you? You found it um, to a certain extent. The, uh, there are several. En- there's more than one ending to it. Um, there's the end of Henry's story, and then there is a little bit at the end where Claire, as an old lady, meets a younger Henry at the end, and she has, in effect, been waiting all her life for this. That bit, I, I felt, was a little bit weak. It was a little bit weak as an ending. Um, so you could, you could see how people would be. I could see how that would disappoint people a little. Hmm. But an, an ending, I suppose if people get into a, an emotional relationship, which, which obviously they do, they connect yes. well with this book. And that, that from, yes. from, from seeing what I've read on the reviews, um, people do connect very well with this book. And the end of any book is, is a struggle. Uh, I, I think back on the on the books that I've loved. One we've discussed many, many times about uh, One Day uh, from from yes. David Nichols. You know, and then mm. the end of that book is it's a disappointment just because you 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 don't want to leave those characters alone. And I can see how people would connect over the over five hundred pages of this book. They would connect, and you know, and they, they'd become part of their lives. And it's also quite difficult to write an ending for a book when the main character he is moving through time from being a young child to being an older person 
so the end is there implicit in the beginning anyway. So it, it is quite a difficult thing to tie off, I would have thought, on a, on a right, from a writer's point of view. Mm, certainly. Uh, before we took the break uh, for some music, we were, you were talking about a book, and there, there are several literary references yes. uh, through, throughout yes. this book, and you, you, you've brought a book, a book in. I mean, it does affect how, if you know the quotes and you know how they are relating to the text, I think it does affect and add something to it. Whether or not it detracts if you don't know those things, as I said, I think perhaps... Possibly, but if I didn't know that, I mean, I said said to you before we came on air here that, that I saw the quotes, and a lot of the time when I see quotes in books... I kind of ignore them because I want the book to do the talking to me. Not, yes. not I, I, that's for me is almost like seeing their research, or seeing their their rough notes, or you know seeing what they've read before it that's maybe inspired them to, yes. to to move on and write this. And I'm I'm very much of the case that actually I, I just want to see what you've written. This is your name on the book. Uh, tell tell me right. what you, tell me what you think. But uh, but you know obviously these quotes throughout throughout this book, like we were talking about John Peel. You know when yes. he mentions a band's names, things like that, that spurs you, emotions that in my mind. That gives you a whole background of of knowledge and images that comes out of one small thing Mm -hmm. whereas someone who's far wider read than i am um these these literary quotes mean something to you and can click off yeah yeah so i I, I can see how that work and perhaps not detract if you've if you've not read it but you know the the quote the the author is using using that very strongly in here the one they use particularly is the andrew marvel poem the 17th century poem to his coy mistress and it's about time. It is all about time and how we have got so little of it. And they use it right from the beginning, running through as a poem they read together, running through to to the last words in the book. And, uh, yes, I, I, I found that that does add something to it to me. I like intertextuality. It, it does it for me. Um, if it's a good literary work like this that, that does it well. Are you going to read that poem for us? I can do that. Basically, the poem is about, it's about a, a man trying to get his girlfriend into bed on one side. So it's to his coy mistress. This is his, his persuasion. But it's also about how time is short and how we must push as much of life, love and everything else into it as we possibly can. Okay, there's no fruity language now, is there? No, okay. you're fine. <laughs> Had we but world enough and time, this coyness lady were no crime. We would sit down and think which way to walk and pass our long love's day. Thou by the Indian Ganges side shouldst rubies find. I by the tide of Humber would complain. I would love you ten years before the flood. And you should, if you choose, refuse till the conversion of the Jews. My vegetable love should grow vaster than empires and more slow. A hundred years should go to praise thine eyes and on thy forehead gaze. Two hundred to adore each breast, but thirty thousand to the rest. An age at least to every part, and the last age should show your heart. For lady, you deserve this state, nor would I love at lower rate. But at my back I always hear time's winged chariot hurrying near. And yonder all before us lie deserts of vast eternity. Thy beauty shall no more be found, nor in thy marble vault shall sound my echoing song. Then worms shall try that long-preserved virginity, and your quaint honour turn to dust, and into ashes all my lust. The grave's a fine and private place, but none, I think, do there embrace. Now, therefore, while the youthful hue sits on thy skin like morning dew, 
And while thy willing soul transpires at every pore with instant fires, now let us sport us while we may. And now, like amorous birds of prey, rather at once our time devour than languish in his slow-chapped power. Let us roll all our strength and all our sweetness up into one ball and tear our pleasures with rough strife through the iron gates of life. Thus, though we cannot make our sun stand still, yet we will make him run. Okay, and uh, so for people who might want to look that book up... That was Andrew Marvel to his coy mistress, which you'll find in any good compendium of poetry. I think it's a very well-known poem. But because it's a very well-known poem and it is about a relationship that is struggling against the demands of time, it makes a good a good one to use within the book and Audrey Niffenegger uses it very well. She uses it throughout the book and, as I say, both explicitly and in the last words of the book. And to me, I find that as something that adds a layer for me. I see. Uh, what we normally do, and we have a yes or a no answer, and I think oh, I yes. know. <laughs> uh, would you recommend this book? I would, I would. I think it's something that I wouldn't recommend to anybody, everybody. I wouldn't particularly have recommended it to you, Paul. Mm. I don't think I would have particularly expected it to be your thing. But I think it is something that you you need to plough through the difficulties of, of working with the time-travelling element. And I think as a human story, I think it's one of the best love stories as in a story about a real strong relationship and a moving story and a family story that, that's been written for a long time. OK, now I am also going to say yes, because this book obviously has so much to offer. And I'm also going to say, with this is going to be in brackets on the end of the yes, don't feel bad if you put it down and, no. don't, and don't read no. it again. And you shouldn't do, you know, I mean, we, we, no. we've joked about this a few times on uh, books that, for this programme, you know, my own programme that we st- I've started to read and just, just can't get through. But, you know, my reading time or, or, or any time, we're talking about time. We're talking about how much you should make the most of time. And if after 70 pages I'm not connecting with something, I'm not going to push myself through 500. No. And no. you, dear listener, should not either. Exactly. Here and <laughs> here end of the Sunday morning sermon. The Reading Room's 101 Books to Read Before You Die. Hello, my name's Leslie Farrell and the book I would recommend is Stuart, A Life Backwards by Alexander Masters. I'd recommend this because uh, I haven't come across many people who've actually read it. I don't think it's an obvious choice. It's an easy read, it's not too long. It's a biography of a homeless man written by uh, somebody who worked with him. It's very funny, it's not sentimental in any way, but it's also very, very powerful and very moving. Okay, now it's time to uh, hear our interview with Claire Kinton, who is a self-published author from Lincolnshire, uh, who I first met after she'd given a brilliant talk at this year's Lincoln Book Festival. Now, the best way to be introduced to Claire is to listen to her read from the very beginning of her debut novel. Dead Game. Author's note, The Big Question. Amid the mass of beings on our planet, there are some who, every so often, will look up to the infinite stars exploding above them and wonder, where have we come from? Why are we here? Are we really just a heavy mass of bodies made up of blood, bone and skin glued to the earth by gravity, running around creating a giant mess? Some of us have been born into beautiful, wealthy and secure homes, whilst others less fortunate find themselves in war-torn graveyards, succumbing to hatred and violence. Whatever our lot, content or dissatisfied, we all feel and we try to stay alive. But what if our bodies are frail and old, Diseased, starving, even blown to pieces. 
Indeed, after the trauma of death itself, what then? Every epic adventure begins with many an unanswered question, yet questions on this scale will be answered with a thousand different voices. They are questions that go way beyond the point of all comprehension. I should begin my story right at the very start of Archie's life, as his adventure here on Earth was so heady and rapid it would be a travesty to miss any part of it. In fact, there are moments in Archie's childhood that may well have developed a stem for his unknown future. But precious as these moments and Archie's beginning may be, and justly they were dear moments to the Fletcher family, there is one day in Archie's life that resides just above his birth in magnitude, and it is here that I start. Do not imagine there is a happily ever after or a hidden kiss to reveal over this page. Archie's story is a fleeting journey of raw hope and unconditional love, yet parallel to that it is the fateful story of one boy's courageous imagination and a flicker of the man he momentarily became. His life on earth was a lightning odyssey that will fire his family for eternity, and as the sun rises on each new day without him, time unrelenting for even an instant, there is a knowing deep within us all that the adventure of life must go on. Claire Kinson reading from her first book, Dead Game. Now, Claire came down to the Siren FM studios recently and I asked her how the book came about. Dead Game started, I would say, eight years ago now. I was pregnant with my first child and my cousin Charles, who was Lance Corporal Charles Stuart Fletcher, who served out in Iraq in 2003, was tragically killed. And um, I started writing down at that point in time in my life how I felt and memories that I had of my cousin and I when we were younger. And it, I, I literally just wrote one chapter, which is actually in the center of Dead Game now, and put it in a drawer. And it wasn't until I would say a good five years after that, that my husband found that one chapter and said to me, this is quite good. <laughs> I think you should carry on with it. And then he bought me a laptop and I carried on. I've always written um, as a child. I've always written since I can remember. I've always had a diary. I've always um, been a short story writer. I've never ventured into writing a novel. But as soon as Gareth bought me that laptop, I just started writing and the story just wrote itself. The characters unfolded before me and it was just something that I was really compelled to write. Let's have a look at the plot. Where did it come from? I mean, you say it just flowed. It did. Um, but how, how would you how would you describe it? It's a young adult's fantasy, and it's about a young lance corporal whose plane plummets into the Persian Gulf during the Second Gulf War, and it's about Archie's transition from this life over to the next, if you like. It's quite a spiritual story. There's a lot of my own personal philosophy of life. Written between the lines, there's lots of different messages trying to inspire people and say have hope and say they can if you say if you really really believe you can do something then you can do it don't sit there saying what if for the rest of your life because I've always wanted to write a book and and here I am and I've done it once you once you felt you had something complete something 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 down what was what was the next step on the publishing scale I I did go down um, a couple of mainstream publishers very very raw manuscript that I sent into them I went away on holiday and came back expecting to find my offer of acceptance of publication. And a and, check, a great yeah. big fat check. Yes. <laughs> um, 
But to my dismay, no, alas, there was no check and there was no offer of publication. But, I mean, Dead Game was very raw then. I hadn't had it edited. It was literally just me. The editing process was just phenomenal. I, I joined a group of um, new authors called the New Writers UK in Nottingham, and they were absolutely phenomenally supportive. A couple of them read my manuscript and gave me ideas. And then I met Joe Field, who is Dead Game's editor, and... She was just amazing. She brought it alive and really showed me different ways of saying things, kept it consistent, and then we went back again and re-edited it. And then I entered Dead Game into the Brit Writers Awards in 2010, and it was shortlisted. So I was absolutely delighted, boosted with confidence, and decided that I was going to self-publish Dead Game and a percentage of the profits would go towards Help for Heroes and Sapphire Forces Help in memory of my cousin and all of all of the troops out there who do a phenomenal job for us. At the same time, helping other charities. It also supports Dyslexia Action, um, which is another charity very dear to my heart. So can you describe, can you remember the time when you got a copy of your book in your hand with a cover? Um, I can quite vividly. I was by myself in my kitchen and this man came to the door with a great big lorry and a crate full of books and I was delighted I think because I went through it step by step with the graphic designer who designed it and to every single last detail to where the barcode was going to go on the back and I thought I might cry but I didn't (laughs) (laughs) Um, no I didn't it was a lovely feeling and I think it's not until after time and the, the book's being sold and the reviews are coming in and now publishers mainstream publishers are getting involved um, and interested that I I actually think yes it's this is all me but I would love to get it out there to the masses it'd be a different world one way that you are self-promoting is social networking so we're looking at Twitter and Facebook what degree of success do you think that, that you're getting from that sort of approach of marketing I would say 50% of the sales of Dead Game come from social networking from Twitter absolute phenomenal response the amount of celebrities that are actually now supporting dead game on twitter is fantastic and on facebook i've now got because i'm going around to schools and talking to children in schools my facebook's gradually rising and i've got a huge amount of the young adults which is who dead games aimed at following me which is really nice and the reviews that come in just on the little comments that they write on facebook is are fantastic you're obviously working on the the follow-up yes and what, what stage is that i am Nearly finished Waiting Game. Waiting Game, half of it's been edited and um, the other half is waiting to be edited. It's hopefully going to be released pre-Christmas. I've had lots of people saying, where is it? We need to read it because I think Dead Game doesn't leave you hanging, but it does make you ask a lot of questions. You want the characters to carry on. Well, I'm interested now as to where your time would go now. Uh, you're, you're obviously promoting Dead Game and you've got another book to write. Do you find it a battle between your time commitments? Yes, it's, it's exhausting. I have three small children, so they are obviously my main priority, which is why writing's fantastic for me and I, I love doing it. But I am up until three o'clock in the morning, some nights, writing Waiting Game. And the promotion of Dead Game is just as and when I can literally get it in let people know that I'm still there, always showing my face on Facebook and always letting people know that I'm there tweeting on Twitter. Been all over Lincolnshire doing talks at schools and actually physically getting them to write creatively themselves. It's not just talking about dead game. My my really real big thing is getting children to pick up a pen and write creatively themselves because I think some people could think that writing a book is only for 
academics and people who've been to university and things like that and I haven't been to university my my education was the education of life my husband and I traveled for five six years before we stopped and got married and so I think a lot of that comes into dead game and waiting game my experience from my traveling yeah and I think what you pass on is how writing's helped you I could wholeheartedly say it's compelled me to write more and get children to write more it's helped me deal with a huge bereavement in my life and so I think yeah I think there's lots of different ways that you can take dead game it's not just a fantasy story it's hopefully doing a lot of other things and signed copies of Dead Game are available from clairekinton.com. Uh, as are links to the Kindle downloads, and I'd recommend looking up Claire on Twitter as well, at Claire underscore Kinton, and that's Claire with an A-I-R-E. And of course you can search uh, for Claire Kinton or Dead Game on Facebook, and make sure you listen to the next Reading Room next month to hear Claire read the explosive first chapter of Dead Game. You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. Thanks for downloading Room 12 of The Reading Room, brought to you from Siren FM. Next month, we'll be interviewing Abigail Tartellian, who will be telling us about her first book, Flick. And we'll also be visiting the cinema. We're going to see One Day, as uh, regular podcast downloaders will know. Uh, my favourite book over the last few years, One Day by David Nichols. So we're going to go and see what the film adaptation is like. And we'll also be hearing from the book pond. And we'll be live from 10am on Sunday, September the 4th at sirenonline.co.uk. 